welcome to, as I said before, our second week. For those of you who, have, uh, who are new and who are just now joining us, this is our second week in our series called The FAQs of Christianity, The Frequently Asked Questions of Christianity. And Bob and I are going to take on um, and look at some of the tough questions that you guys ask and that the world asks about Christianity, and in tonight's case, about the Bible. Tonight I'm going to tell you where your Bible comes from. Um, A lot of times people will say, well, the Old Testament and the New Testament are just written by people, just written by men. How can you take that and be Scripture? How can that be from God? We're going to talk about that tonight, and we're going to answer that question tonight. Um, And as we do so, we're going to encounter some arguments that the world makes, some arguments that maybe your friends have even said, and we're going to we're going to take those on kind of one at a time. But first, let me tell you why this is important to you. Because some of you may be saying, I don't even really read the Bible, so why is this important to me? In 2014, there was a study done by a news organization called One News Now. And the study revealed one quarter or 25% of the teenagers in America, one quarter or 25% of the teenagers in America believe that the Bible is, quote, a dangerous book that has been used to oppress people for centuries. In this poll of all non-Christian teenagers, so so teenagers who are not Christian, of all the non-Christian teenagers in America, only 25% of them believe that the Bible is actually written by God. 45% of them believe that it was, quote, written by men with good stories and good advice. 9% of adults in America would say, that the way they view the world is influenced by the Bible. 9% of adults in America would say that the way they view the world is influenced by the Bible. In the year 2002, Barna, which is, the, um, which is a Christian research ministry, they take a lot of polls. They take polls on anything ever, forever. And in 2002, Barna released a poll on absolute truth. Absolute truth is the belief that Even if you don't feel good about it, it's still true. Truth doesn't change based on your feelings. Does that make sense? We're going to do a session on absolute truth, but not tonight. But that's what absolute truth is. In 2002, Barner released a study and found that just 22% of adults believe in absolute truth. Percentage of teenagers who believe in absolute truth in 2002, 6. 6 6% of teenagers believe that there are things that are true regardless of how you feel about them. 94% of teenagers believe that if you don't feel good about this truth, then it doesn't have to be true, which I'm sure you've heard before. And that was in 2002. That was over a decade ago. How can this happen? Here's how. Ladies, if I came up to you at the end of this evening and I said, hey, and then I followed that hey with something else, and I said that I've met this guy, and he's awesome, and I think you guys would really hit it off, and I think... I think he would be a great boyfriend for you. And I said that. I think you guys should start dating. And you say, oh. Like some of you were like, what? And so, and so you're like, oh, huh, okay. And so you start asking me, well, okay, let's start simple. What's his name? Uh, I don't know. I don't know his name. Okay. All right. So you don't know his name. Okay. Well, what does he look like? What color is his eyes? I really don't know what color his eyes are. Okay. Eyes are a hard one. All right. Well, what color is his hair? What color of hair does he have? I don't know. I don't know that one either, okay? 
Awesome. So, well, where is he from? What school does he go to? I don't know that either. I really can't. I don't know why you're asking me all these questions. Okay, well, how old is he? How old is this guy that you think I should date? I really don't know. You don't know how old he is? No. So he could be 40. I mean, so he could be 80. Well, he doesn't have to be 80. He could be younger than 80. We just, you don't, you don't know. Okay, well, do you know what he likes to do for fun? Do you know what movies he likes? Do you know any of that? Mm-mm, I really don't. I have no idea. So, do you, so you want to date this guy or what? Or, or no? And, and you say no, and then you leave. And, and you should. You should leave. Guys, he, here's why I'm telling you this. How can you be expected to fall in love with someone that you don't know? And how can you be expected to fall in love with your Bible if you don't know anything about it? That's what happens to the 94%. That's what happens to those people. And I'm not trying to come down on you because that's my job. That's my job and Bob's job and Mac's job to be sure that you are equipped, to be sure that you, that you know these things. Because, see, here it is. Because the more you know about something, the less likely you are to leave it. The more you know about something, the less likely you are to leave it. The more you know about something, the more likely you are to hook into it and to stay in it. How do you fall in love with someone? How do you fall deeper in love with someone? You get to know more about them. That's why tonight is important, and that's why this series is important. Because Jesus wants you to stay and learn more about him, and learn more about his word. So that's what we're going to do tonight, okay? We're going to learn more about his word. We're going to learn about the books of the Bible and where they come from. Who wrote them? Why did they write them? We're going to start in the Old Testament, obvi, and then we're going to move into the New Testament, okay? So, but, but before we get rolling, and as we go, we'll encounter some arguments that people make against the Bible. And I, some, maybe even some arguments that your friends have said about the Bible. And I will teach you how to engage in those conversations, okay? I will teach you how to engage in those conversations. But the first thing, and this is the most important thing, look up at me if you're not. This is the most important part. Saying that men wrote the Bible is like saying the pencil wrote the paper. Okay? Saying that men wrote the Bible is like saying the pencil wrote the paper. The pencil is the tool that was used to write the paper, but it's not the driving force behind it. Does that make sense? The pencil doesn't write the paper. Who writes the paper? You do. You write the paper. And God wrote the Bible, and he used men to do it. God wrote the Bible using men the same way you write a paper using a pencil. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. And I'm going to go ahead and read it here in just a second. So one more time. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. And listen, and think about how saying men wrote the Bible is like saying the pencil wrote the paper. Okay? Here we go. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, that means just a writing in Scripture, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Here it is. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit 
spoke from God. That's the key to understanding how the Old Testament was written and the New Testament, especially the Old Testament. That's the key to understanding how the Bible was written. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So let's do the Old Testament first, okay? Old Testament first. Over the course of about a thousand years is when the Old Testament was written. And, and in it, God appointed, now here it is, leaders, kings, and prophets. Okay? It's not going to be a quiz, so don't freak out. Leaders, kings, and prophets. Those are the people, the men that God appointed to write the Old Testament. And these men were moved by the Holy Spirit, like Second Peter tells us, to write the Old Testament. Flip over, if you've got one, flip over to your table of contents. If you have a table of contents, a bunch of hipsters, table of contents, and go to the Old Testament, okay? Now, again, not going to be a quiz, so don't freak out, and we're going to cover this quickly because we could sit here all night, but what I'm going to do is, and and again, we're going to go through this kind of quickly, so if you have questions afterwards, please stick around and ask them. That's totally fine, but I want to show you who wrote each book of the Old Testament really quickly, and you'll begin to see this pattern develop as we go, okay? So stick in your table of contents, And we'll get rolling really quickly. All right, here we go. Ready? So Old Testament, and we'll do the New Testament later. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right, those were all written by Moses. Those are the first five books of the Bible. They're called the Pentateuch. Why is it called the Pentateuch? How many sides does a pentagon have? Five. Pentateuch is how many books of the Bible? Okay, so there's the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. Next one is Joshua, which was written by Joshua, no surprise there. Both these guys are leaders, okay? Remember, leaders, kings, and prophets appointed by God. So these are leaders who wrote that. Then you've got Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. These, these were all written, we believe, by the prophet Samuel, okay? Judges is the only one that we're kind of iffy about, but we still lean towards the prophet Samuel. First and Second Kings were either written by the prophet Samuel or the prophet Jeremiah, okay? Again, so we've got Prophets, leaders, and kings, okay? So we continue down. First, second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah, all written by the prophet Ezra. And then comes Esther, okay? We're not really sure about Esther. Possibly Ezra, okay? When, when, when the books of the Bible were being put together, Esther was kind of the last in line. And the reason is this. In the book of Esther, spoiler alert, at the end, there's kind of this Jewish uprising. The Jewish people overtake the military that's over them, Okay? During the time that Esther was being considered as part of the Bible, the Jewish people were being ruled by another country. If you're that other country, you don't want a book circulating about how Jewish people rose up and conquered. So they're trying to stamp this book out. They're trying to damage its credibility, say it's really not that good, it's really not that important. That's one of the reasons Esther didn't get added in until late. But we really don't know who wrote Esther. We're leaning on Ezra. All right, next one, Job. I'm going to be totally real. We have no idea who wrote Job. We have no idea. Some people think it was Moses, who would be a leader. Some people think it was King Solomon, who was a king. Okay, So those are the people that we think wrote Job, but we really don't know. All right, then we move on. Psalms was written largely by King David and King Solomon. Proverbs was written by Solomon. Ecclesiastes was also written by Solomon. And then I'm going to throw this out there. Who do you think wrote Song of Solomon? Isaiah. No, it was King Solomon. It was good. King Solomon, he wrote Song of Solomon. Then Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah. Jeremiah and Lamentations were both written by the prophet Jeremiah. So we've got leaders, kings, and prophets. Now, this last big chunk of your Old Testament, Ezekiel through Malachi. These are called the minor prophets, okay? This 
Now nah, we don't worry about it. These were, these were called the minor prophets, okay? These last 14 books. From Ezekiel down to Malachi. Whoever the title of the book is, that's who wrote the book. Does that make sense? Jonah wrote Jonah. Nahum wrote Nahum. Habakkuk, poorly named, wrote Habakkuk. Poor guy, that's just, that's just awful. So that's who wrote, that's your Old Testament, okay? All right, we made it. You guys okay? That's your Old Testament. You've got about 25 different authors over the course of about 1,000 years, okay? Does that make sense? Genesis was written about 1440 B.C. The last book was written about 400 B.C., okay? So over the course of about 1,000 years. Now, here's the first argument. Here's the first question that people will ask, okay? How can this be? These books are hundreds of years apart. They're all written by different people. How can you respect that as Scripture? You're just taking different books and putting them together and calling it the Old Testament. At least in, the, at least in other religions, the book was written by one guy. He sat down, he wrote it, he gave it away. The Old Testament doesn't do that. How can you call that Scripture? And here's the key. And, and as we continue on in this series with arguments about suffering, why is, it, why is a good God allow suffering? Is there such thing as absolute truth? What you're going to find, and just come with me for just a second, what you're going to find is so many of the arguments that are made against the Bible, they're actually making your argument for you. They're actually helping you by making this argument. And I'll show you what I mean, okay? And we'll see this as we go through it. We've got a couple more questions, and you'll see. If they make the argument against you, they're actually helping you in this. All right, so let me show you. Again, the question, so many authors, thousands of years, what's the deal? And they're, they're absolutely right. These, guys, these books were written by at least 25 different people. We'll do questions after. Written by 20, like, like where your head's at though. 25 different people over the course of 1,000 years. These books were passed along for 2,000 years without a printing press. I'm sure you guys fell asleep in history when they talked about the printing press. So again, it uh, continues on without a printing press. How could this be? And yet, here's the thing. All of these books, written by all these different authors, all these years apart, they lock together seamlessly. And this is the key to, to the Old Testament. All these books that were written separately, they lock together seamlessly. Let me show you what I'm talking about, okay? And you don't have to turn there. Just kind of listen and, and tune in for a minute. Exodus 32.4, okay? In Exodus 32.4, you've got the golden calf. You guys know the golden calf? You know what I'm talking about? Let me just kind of spark note real quick. What happens is Moses is up on Mount Sinai with God dealing with the Ten Commandments, okay? While Moses is up on Mount Sinai, all the Israelites are at the base of the mountain. And Aaron, Moses' brother, who's the priest of Israel at the time, all of the Israelites are getting bored and they're getting angry with God and they don't want to worship God anymore. So Aaron takes all their golden jewelry molds it together and creates a golden calf. And they begin to worship this golden calf. And in Exodus 32, 4, Aaron points to the golden calf and says this, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Pointing to the golden calf. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's Aaron in the book of Exodus. 900 years later, the Israelites are enslaved in a country called Babylon, and the book of 1 Kings is written. And in the book of 1 Kings, this king named Jeroboam, he makes two golden calves, using the jewelry around, two golden calves. And he, in, in 1 Kings 12, 28, he points to the two golden calves, and he looks at the Israelites, and he says, 900 years later, behold... Your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Different authors, 
different setting, 900 years later, while the Israelites are in slavery at the time. Why does he use the same word-for-word sentence? Why would he do that? Because these scriptures, 900 years ago, have been passed along. They've been taken care of. Because the books are connected even though they're hundreds of years apart as God continues to take care of his word. Another example. Listen to this. In 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7, in 1 Samuel 4 through 7, the Ark of the Covenant, which is kind of the prized possession of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is stolen from Israel by another country, okay? And they want it back. So what God does in 1 Samuel 4 through 7 is he strikes this other country with a plague. Okay? He strikes it with a plague. When you think of the plagues, it reminds you of what? It reminds you of Exodus and Moses. And the reason is in 1 Samuel 4 7, I'm sorry, in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7, God strikes this other country with a plague and sends this country into what's called panic. The language used to describe the panic that this other country goes into is almost word for word the exact same language used in Exodus to describe the panic that Egypt was thrown in when God struck it with plagues. 1 Samuel and Exodus are 500 years apart. Scholars outside of the Bible who are not Christian will tell you that 1 Samuel and Exodus were written 500 years apart, and yet it's a word-for-word recounting of the panic that was driven by the plagues. Speaking of the plagues in Exodus, they're super random. Have you ever noticed that? They seem super random. God's trying to get his people free, and he strikes them with frogs. Frog? Take that! You know what I mean? Like, frogs? Is that the thing that... That's really the, like... That's what you're going to go with. And then he turns the Nile into blood. Why would he do that? Why does he turn the Nile into blood? Why are there frogs? What is happening with this? We don't have near the time to unpack this, but if you pay attention to the ten plagues of Exodus, you'll see that the ten plagues of Exodus is actually a reverse of the seven days of creation in Genesis. The ten plagues of, Ex- the ten plagues of Exodus is a recreation, is a reverse of the seven days of creation in Genesis. Think about it. Let's just, you, can, you can do this on your own. Think about this. What's the last thing that God creates on the sixth day? He creates someone and someone else, right? Who's he make? Come on. There we go. He creates Adam and Eve. He creates man, mankind. Everybody chill. Man is mankind, right? So he makes mankind. The last thing that God creates. What's the last plague in Exodus? The death of the what? The death of the firstborn, the death of man, the creation of man, the death of man. What's the first thing that God creates on earth? Let there be light. What's the last plague before the death of the firstborn? Darkness. What else does God create on day three? Vegetation. The eighth plague is the plague of locusts. What do the locusts eat? The vegetation. The hail falls in the seventh plague and specifically destroys. The Bible goes out of its way to say that it destroys man, animal, and vegetation. What does God create on the fifth day or the sixth day? Either one. Cattle. He creates the beasts of the field. What's the fifth plague? The death of the livestock. It is a, it is a reverse, and you see the pattern going back and forth. These books are connected across time. Last one, and we, there's, there's like 80 of these, seriously. And we could, but the last one, and this is my favorite because we're going through it in Sunday school right now, and I'm geeking out about it. The, 
Um, we're in the book of Esther in Sunday school, okay? And long story short, in Esther, the bad guy's name is this guy named Haman, okay? He's, this bad guy's named Haman, and his goal, his objective, and this is where it's important, so come on. His objective is to kill all of the Jewish people, all of the Israelites, all of the people of God. There is no church yet. There is Israel at this point in time. His, his goal is to kill all of the people of God. And, and kind of the cherry on top of his plan is he's going to take the leader of the Jews at the time, this guy named Mordecai, and literally impale him on a tree. Hang him on a tree, okay? Your Bible says, some of your Bibles say gallows, but the word is ha'etz, which is Hebrew for tree. He's literally going to hang this guy on a tree, okay? And you can already begin to see where this is going. Long story short, the tables get turned. And instead of Mordecai, the, the, the leader of the Jews, being hung on this tree, Haman, the evil one, gets nailed to this tree. And the Jewish people end up going free. And they look at Haman hanging on this tree and they celebrate. Now, this man, now come here. This man hanging on a tree that was supposed to be the sign of the death of the people of God, Israel, now the man hanging on the tree is a sign of victory and hope for the people of God. What else does that sound like hundreds of years later? Listen to Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Acts chapter 5 verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. The, the whole mission of evil was to hang Christ on a tree and come to find later evil is the only thing that got stuck up on the tree and left there. We don't even know who wrote the book of Esther and look at the connection across the Testaments. This is not a joke. This is for real. This is the real thing. The words of the prophets in the Old Testament were absolutely the real thing to Old Testament Jews and they should be the real thing to us today. So yes, how indeed, to your friends, you could say, could 39 books from 25 different authors over a thousand years be so connected and treasured by Christians for two millennia? How indeed. They have made your argument for you. The Pharisees hated Jesus in the New Testament. They absolutely hated him, but they never questioned him when he quoted from the Old Testament. They never questioned him when he quoted from the Old Testament. The words of the Old Testament prophets are universally respected, so much so that when the prophets died, the Old Testament stopped. Do you ever wonder why it goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Like, does the Old Testament expire and you have to go to Kroger and get a New Testament? Check the date. You know, like, is that what, is that what has happened? Check the date on that testament. Um, no. The legitimacy of the Old Testament books is connected to the prophets who wrote them. When the prophets died, the Old Testament ceased. And you see this pattern in the New Testament as well. Except for instead of being tied to prophets and leaders and kings, the New Testament is tied to the apostles. Flip back to your table of contents and we're going to do this again. But now you guys are pros. Table of contents, we're going to run through the New Testament. And remember, the New Testament is connected to the apostles. The Old Testament is connected to the prophets. So here we go, okay? I hope that you have found your table of contents at this point. Um, okay, here we go. Matthew. Matthew was an apostle. Easy. Mark. Mark was not an apostle, but he was Peter's interpreter. Peter, the apostle, always got his foot in his mouth. Mark was Peter's interpreter. And we know this from books outside the Bible. 
from non-Christian sources who view history as all the way at the top, which we should too, but they don't love Jesus. But even these people, they view Mark as Peter's interpreter. So again, Mark is tied to the apostles. Then you go to the book of Luke. Luke is closely associated, and he is the partner of Paul, the apostle. We know this from the book of Acts, and we know this from 2 Timothy 4, where Paul specifically says that everyone has abandoned him except for Luke. Then you go to John. John was an apostle. Then you go to the book of Acts. Again, Acts was written by Luke. Luke is tied to Paul the apostle, went with him on mission. Then you have the 13 letters of Paul. From uh, Romans all the way down to Hebrews, okay? The 13 letters of Paul. Paul was obviously the apostle. Then you get the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a little bit tricky because we don't know who wrote Hebrews specifically. Some people think Paul or Barnabas or Apollos or Prisca and Aquila, but we don't totally know. But we know that they are in the circle of apostles because listen to Hebrews 13, 22 to 24. Listen to this. But I urge you, brothers, bear this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Here it is. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I shall see you. So this guy is connected to Timothy. Timothy and Paul are kind of Batman and Robin in the whole New Testament, so they are all connected together. The author of Hebrews is connected. Then we have the book of James. James is Jesus' brother. James is also called... An apostle. Listen to Galatians 1.19. Paul says, But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. James is an apostle. First, second Peter. Peter's an apostle. First, second, third John. John is the same apostle. Um, Jude, who is the brother of Jesus, which means he's also the brother of James, who was an apostle. And then Revelation by John the apostle. So there's your New Testament. Um, there you have it. And the apostles, the apostles die out. Let's back up. The prophets died out. The Old Testament ceases. The apostles die out. The New Testament ceases. And you are not to add to it at all. Flip over in your Bible, and you're in your table of contents, so this should be an easy one. Flip over to Ephesians 2, 19 to 20. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 20. And we're going to watch as the Old Testament and the New Testament are connected in this verse. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. Here we go. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Here it is. Having been built on the foundation of what? Of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So the, the prophets, there's your Old Testament. The apostles, there's your New Testament. And their foundation is Jesus you don't ever add to a foundation. You build on top of it, but you don't ever extend the foundation out. One more, and then we'll, we'll keep moving. Jude 1.3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Once and for all delivered. It cannot be added to. Revelation 22, 18 through 19. If anyone adds to these words, God will add to him plagues, which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from these words, God will take away his part in the tree of life. That's pretty clear. All right. So that brings us now. All these different writers of the New Testament brings the same problem that we have in the Old Testament. And this is how one of the, one of, one of the arguments goes. Okay, It starts with the four Gospels. The Gospels are so different. That's what they'll say. These Gospels are so different. If they're so different, how can they be legit? 
How can you depend on them? They're, they're so different. They're not even the same story. How can you depend on these four Gospels if they're so different? They think since they're different, that means that they can't be trusted. And so they're inconsistent. That is not the case. And here it is. Again, they make the argument for you. The fact that the four Gospels are so different actually helps the Bible instead of hurting it. Let me explain it like this. If, and I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget. If Bob, Bo, and I all saw the same car accident, okay? We see the same car accident. Police come. Oh, we're in trouble. You're not in trouble. Come on. Okay, whatever. And so we go, and they split us into three different interrogation rooms, okay? We're all by ourselves in three different rooms. And they ask us about the wreck. You will hear about the same wreck, will you not? But you will hear the same story told three different ways. You'll hear the same story told three different ways because it's from three different people. But here's the thing. Bob is going to remember and mention things that I won't remember or mention. I'm going to remember and mention things that Bo won't remember or mention. And Bo's going to remember and mention things that Bob won't remember and mention. You actually get, by getting three different perspectives, you are actually getting a fuller version of the story than if all three versions had been the same. It's like if you're, if you're watching TV and you're watching baseball and you see a home run and you see the home run from four different camera angles. Same home run, four different camera angles. But you can understand and enjoy and appreciate that home run more fully than if you just watched it from the four of the same angles. That's why the Gospels are told differently. And while we're with the translation thing, let's stick there for one more. And this is what people will say. My dad has said this. Awkward. Um, Here we go. One of the arguments is, the Bible has been translated so many times. How can you even be sure, how can you even be for show that you have the same exact writing that came originally? It's been handed down for 2,000 years. It's been translated so many times. How can you be sure you have the same writing? Again, and it's going to be a broken record, but that's because it's so true. This argument, the fact that the Bible has been translated so many times, actually helps the Bible instead of hurting it. Go like this. You and nine of your friends, and you've all been scholarly trained in academia, you are going to translate the Bible. And that's what people are always like. It's been translated so many times. They just assume that like a bunch of basketball coaches got together to translate the Bible and that it's not accurate. These were the highest level of scholar. Ten of you, you get together to translate the Bible. You get to John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Okay, for God so... And you get stuck on this word. For God so what? The world. You take a month, you all separate, you all go study, and you come back. At the end of the month, nine of you say, it means loved. We all studied, we all looked at the history and the text, it means loved. One of you comes back and says, I got that it means liked. I got that it means liked, not loved. Well... Who are you going to go with? The one guy who said liked or the nine people who studied it and came with loved? You're going to go with the nine people, but here's the issue. What if it's just two of you? What if it's just you and your bro and you're translating the Bible together? And, at, and you, for God so, ah, oh, what is it? And you split up and you come back. You get loved, he gets liked. Now it's a dead heat. And you don't know what you're supposed to do. You see, the fact it actually makes the Bible more reliable because it's been translated so many times. Don't look at it like this. Don't say, well, the Bible's been translated so many times. Look at it. It's the exact same thing. The Bible has been put through so many tests. 
The Bible has been tested. It's like, imagine that. The Bible's been tested so many times. How do you know it's true? That's the point. This thing has been put through so many tests. The fact that it's been translated more actually helps the case for the Bible. Nine people out of the ten said, eight out of the ten people said, love instead of like. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is what the text says. Two more things, and then we're out of here. You guys have been awesome. Um, I want to show you the order of the New Testament, because I think that will help you understand it better, okay? Go back to your table of contents, and look at this. So this is what we're going to do. Okay, um, so first, you've got Matthew, like, because people think that the New Testament is just kind of just put in there. Well, there's an order to it. And the better you see this, the more you'll understand it and, and grow to love it, I think. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. Of course, those are going to come first because it's the story of Jesus' life. Okay, And remember, it's four different camera angles. Okay, Four different camera angles. Well, why are they so different? For example, Matthew's Gospel is written to Jewish people. That's why, think about it. Matthew's, Matthew's book starts with a genealogy, which is, which is what so many Old Testament books start with. Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, gets baptized. Israel, in Exodus, crosses the Jordan River, and then they do what? They wander in the desert for 40 years. Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan River. What does he do? He wanders in the desert for 40 days. Matthew is tying Jesus back to the Old Testament for his Jewish audience. Mark... Matthew, Mark. Mark's not written to Jewish people. Mark is written to Roman believers. So there's no need to include all this Jewish stuff about the Old Testament because they don't have the Old Testament. That's one of the reasons Mark's gospel is so much shorter than all the others. So it's four different camera angles. All right, so you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you've got Acts, which is essentially the sequel to the, pro- to, uh, to the gospels. Kind of Gospels Part 2, Empire Strikes Back kind of thing going here. So you have Acts. Yeah, some of the nerds liked it. So, okay, so we move on to Acts. Um, I'm under a two. It's okay. So we got Acts. All right, then we have the letters of Paul. And the letters, all right, here you go. And the letters of Paul go from big to small. They really do. You have Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. These are all churches that Paul writes to. The Church of Rome, the Church of Corinth. The church of Ephesus, the church of Philippi, the church of Colossae, these big churches. Then you go, then, then you go to the Thessalonians and all the, the church of Thessalonica. Then you get down to, first and second, Timothy and Titus and Philemon. So Paul's writing to big groups, and then Paul's just writing to people. Then you have Hebrews, which is written to Jewish Christians, and then you've got um, James, first, second, Peter. John, Jude, these are the order that these guys were in the church. Roman Catholics believe that Peter was kind of the original head of the church. wrong James was the head of the church in Jerusalem. So that's their order. James was the main guy, and then Peter and John were kind of his right and left-hand men. That's why it's in that order. Then you have Jude, who's the brother of Jesus. Revelation is last because it's not a letter. It's a prophecy, and it's a prophecy about the end. So we should put it at the end. Last thing, Sam read uh, so eloquently at the beginning from 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, and it talks about how, look at me, hang on for just a minute. It talks about how we are to protect the treasure that has been given to us. You can't do that if you don't know about it. To stick to the teaching, verse 13 of what Sam read said, to stick to the teaching that has been given to us. You can't do that if you don't know the teaching, if you don't know the Bible. Now, Ryan, I'm not a scholar. How am I supposed to learn this stuff. Have you ever wondered, you know, can I really trust the Bible? 
Can I really trust the Bible? I want to recommend a book to you guys. You know what it's called? Can I really trust the Bible? And it's, eight, it's literally, guys, it's 80 pages long. These are, Kristen calls them baby pages. These are little pages. It's 80 pages long. I looked it up on Amazon yesterday. It's $8, okay? This is a book that you can, you can haul out in two weeks if you really wanted to. And you can just take it and read it in, cha- in chunks if you want to, just by chapter. But it answers basic questions like this about why is the Bible in the order that it's in? Why are, these, why are these books organized the way they are? Who wrote these books and why? The answers are there. You don't get the excuse of, well, I just never was able to figure out the answer. You can. This book is 80 pages long, and there's all kinds of information like this. You guys have been awesome. Um, let me pray, and then, uh, and then we'll close it out. Mm-hmm.